0: So this is the 9th of May 2017 and this evening I'm going to continue to share some insights from a book called Centering Prayer which is by Cynthia Bourgeau. And just as a reminder since the first part of this talk was several weeks ago now or for those people who weren't here last time this book is about Centering Prayer which is a Christian form of meditation practice and this uh, Christian form of meditation has been heavily influenced by Zen It was developed in the 70s, um, heavily under the influence of Zen. But it's also developed its own style and character. And um, as you remember from last time, Cynthia Bourgeault characterizes this form of meditation as a surrender practice, as opposed to a concentration practice or an awareness practice, which is the two categories that we usually use to define our practice. But certainly uh, as we read about this surrender practice can recognize this as an aspect of our own practice and for me I found it quite helpful to to have this aspect of our practice kind of highlighted as it was in this book. So the last time we were looking at the the formal practice what in Zen we'd call the -the on-the-mat practice and this time we're going to focus more on bringing the practice into daily life which is really what the second half of this book focuses on and um, really was the part that I found especially helpful. So Bourgeois writes, At first when you begin a practice of meditation, it feels like a place you go to. You may think of it as my inner sanctuary. But as the practice becomes more and more established in you, this inner sanctuary begins to flow out into your life so it becomes not so much a place that you go to but more and more a place that you come from. It is a sense of connectedness known from so deeply within you that nothing can shake it. So in Centering Prayer this connectedness is cultivated by this attitude of surrender and by the practice of what the Christian mystics call kenosis. And I talked about this last time Kinosis literally means emptying. It's the Greek word for emptying. So it's the practice over and over again of letting go of the small self, specifically of letting go of thoughts as they come to us when we're we're sitting. Um, As as Bourgeau says, it's just practice over and over with that one bare gesture of letting the thoughts go. And she calls this love made full in the act of giving itself away. So that's the the formal practice. And then when we take this practice into daily life, there's essentially two techniques that that are discussed in this book and so I'm going to look at each of them tonight. And the first one is what she calls working with the inner observer. And then the second one is called the, the welcoming prayer. So to start with this one about the inner observer, I'm going to read to you how she describes it and I think when you hear it, you'll recognize it as what in Buddhism we call mindfulness, and especially mindfulness as it's taught by the modern-day Vipassana movement is very, very similar to this, if, if not identical. And it's possible that just as the formal practice of this Christian meditation was influenced by Zen, it, it's certainly possible that this practice of mindfulness was influenced by Buddhist practice. I don't have any evidence about that one way or the other. But at any rate, she says that the distinctive feature of the inner observer is that it's non-identified. In other words, it can watch what's going on without grabbing onto it or claiming the process for itself. So she writes, in ordinary psychological terms, to be self-aware means to be able to say, for example, I am very angry at you, or I am feeling sad right now. There is articulateness, but no separation. You are still completely identified with whatever it is you're feeling. In inner work, by contrast, the goal is to gain some space between that feeling and a deeper sense of your own selfhood. And she points out that in the formal practice, of course, we've already been working with this um, separation, with learning this separation. She says, as you work with the instruction, whenever a thought comes up, let it go. You begin to discover that you, in fact, do have the capacity to separate. When a thought comes up, you can just say no. Obviously then, you're not just your thoughts. That mysterious chooser in you must emerge from a much deeper and steadier place at the center of your being. Work with an inner observer simply extends this core insight into daily life. And, And she gives the example of how it might very literally be carried over from a formal practice into a daily life practice if for example there's um, a person or a situation that you're struggling with and that keeps coming up to you as you're sitting and you keep letting it go then it's possible when you're confronted with that person or situation you may actually be able to find some space and and to let go of the thoughts and the feelings instead of just spinning into reactivity immediately. But a little later she talks about um, what she calls the purpose of working with the inner witness. And she said, it is not as frequently assumed a way of bailing out of your small self into your larger self, escaping the horizontal axis of your being in favor of the vertical. Rather it lives at the intersection of the two axes and its purpose is to bring them into meaningful alignment. Because of its primary function as connection, then, the inner witness is not about dissociation. It is not about using the higher self to suppress the lower self. In fact, as virtually all genuine spiritual teachers insist, its real function is to bring you into a state of presence, to back you down out of your mind into a full embodiment of your being. Even more strongly, its purpose is to bring you into a state of unconditional presence so that you not only believe but know that no physical or emotional state has the power to knock you out of presence. It is not a matter of replacing negative emotions with positive emotions, only of realizing that through magnetic center presence can be sustained regardless of whatever inner outer storms may assail you. Amazingly, you discover that at the depths, being still holds firm. So when I read that passage, I was immediately reminded of something that I'm told Roshi Kaplow used to often say, which was that you can't fall out of the universe. And um, in fact, then, about 25 pages later here, um, Bergeot essentially says the same thing, that you can't fall out of the universe, but from a Christian point of view, using the, the word God, as we talked about last time, she says, the goal of contemplative life is unitive seeing, not so much union with God, understood as wanting God to the exclusion of all else, but rather gradually coming to realize that really there is nothing that is not God. God is the higher and the lower, the dots and the spaces between the dots. Nothing can fall out of God. So, finally though, she has some com- comments that I think are helpful about being realistic with this m- work of mindfulness or this work with the inner witness. She says, it seems, logical, excuse me, it seems logical to expect that an increase in seeing should result in an immediate increase in capacity for doing, but this is usually not the case. With practice you may be able to notice when your buttons are being pushed or when you find yourself slipping into self-pity or self-righteousness. But noting it doesn't necessarily make the mood shift. Sometimes the very best you can do is to stay present to what you're seeing, including enduring the gap in yourself between seeing and being able to do anything about it. To try to shift into fix-it mode will throw you out of your inner observer and back into your superego. So I think that's a really important point. Um, When we're being mindful, we're just seeing, we're just being mindful. We're not trying to fix the situation. And also, she says, even if you can't shift the mood, it it doesn't mean that this conscious seeing is ever wasted. She says, no conscious seeing is ever wasted. If all you can do is wave goodbye to yourself as you go over the waterfall, this is a billion times more important than changing anything. Seeing creates a new relationship with yourself. Eventually, that new relationship will bear fruit in the power to do. But doing is never the point. Every seeing, no matter how calamitous to the ego, in other words, no matter how embarrassing it may be for us to see what's actually going on, she says, every seeing is an enhancement of being, a strengthening of the connection of the worlds within you. So that's the bit about the inner observer. And then, the part that I want to spend more time is what she calls the Welcoming Prayer. And as she says, this Welcoming Prayer is Centering Prayer's tool par excellence for making the transition from surrender understood simply as a methodology of meditation into surrender as an underlying attitude and practice for meeting daily life. So just as when we hear about working with the inner observer um, it can remind us clearly of mindfulness practice in, in Buddhism, when you hear about this welcoming prayer it may also remind you of something that you've heard about before. Um, it's a little more specific than just something like mindfulness in, in general. But it sounds very much like a method that I know Sensei has talked about once or twice in Taisho, a method that's taught by Thich Nhat Hanh and it's a method that he presents for working with afflictive emotions and it has five steps to it which there, I, looking this up I actually found the five steps um, named differently in different places but at least one version of it goes recognize, accept, embrace, release, investigate and this practice is taught by Thich Nhat Hanh, is also very similar to a method that I've encountered in Massachusetts, when I've sat with um, a branch of the Insight Meditation Society there. So the Insight Meditation Society is one of the big centers that's part of the modern Vipassana movement. And it seems to be a standard um, part of the teaching at um, IMS in Massachusetts now. I mean all the teachers talk about it as if just everybody knows this so this seems to be a standard part of the teaching there now and they have this ac- acronym for it called RAIN and that stands for recognize, allow, investigate and non-identification so it's a similar thing of a, of a process that you can go through when you're dealing with, with um, strong emotions and the welcoming prayer has three steps which I think is an improvement because I think if you're trying to, especially in um, the moment, deal with strong emotions as they come up, it's helpful to have fewer steps. But um, the steps are also quite direct and straightforward. So the steps in the welcoming prayer are sink in, welcome, and let go. And so um, I'll get into each of those in a little bit of detail in a, in a few minutes here. But first I want to look at some of the background to this and one of the things that I think is interesting here is that even though you can see a very strong family resemblance between this welcoming prayer and between these methods that are taught in Buddhism I don't think in this case that there's any influence um, from the Buddhist techniques coming into this welcoming prayer because the welcoming prayer was very clearly invented at one time by one person. It was in the 1980s and it was invented by a woman called Mary Marzovsky and she developed this out of her own um, sitting practice, out of her own centering prayer practice and there's a little bit of biographical information about her in the book and reading it, it seemed to me that pretty clear that certainly this woman back in the 80s hadn't heard about these techniques by Thich Nhat Hanh or by um, the Vipassana teachers even if those had been um, developed at that time and so I just found it kind of fascinating that just by doing this practice of silent sitting and then thinking about how to move it into daily life several different teachers seem to have come up with something that you know is uh, not, not, not necessarily identical but is, is really getting at the same thing so it just seems to be something that that grows for people very organically out of doing the sitting practice. But just to tell you a little about Mary Murzovsky, it says here, Mary was a New Yorker through and through from her Brooklyn accent to her in your face kind of pizzazz. A divorced Catholic back in the era when such things were virtually unheard of She supported her family through her job as an administrator in a psychiatric hospital, later offering her spare time as a literacy volunteer in the prisons. Through her work in therapy, she was familiar with the biofeedback techniques that were then sprouting. And on her own, she had already begun to develop a personal life practice, combining these techniques with an underlying attitude of surrender that had been deeply imprinted on her through reading, Abandonment to Divine Providence, a seventeenth-century spiritual classic by Pierre de Caussade. When she encountered Centering Prayer and Thomas Keating's evolving teachings on the false self-system, the pieces began to come together for her in a single integrated method. So just as a reminder, Thomas Keating is one of the uh, Trappist monks who developed the Centering Prayer, and he is the teacher of the woman who wrote this book that I'm working from, Cynthia Bourgeot. And so he also was this uh, Mary Marzovsky's teacher. And it says here, it talks here about how she encountered him and she encountered his teachings on the the false self system. So um, I am going to explain something about that. Um, This false self system is a way that Keating combines some of the aspects of centering prayer with some basic principles from developmental psychology, and um, one of the ways that he became interested in doing this and that he uh, ended up working out this system was because of an experience that he had. Well, of I, I assume of not just one experience but ongoing experiences that he had of essentially running Centering Prayer Sushins. So the first one that he did though was in 1983. So that was the first uh, Centering Prayer intensive that was organized and it was held in New Mexico and it was very specifically held on the model of a Zen Sushin. So remember that the Zen teacher, um, Joshi Suzaki had been running some Sushins at the Trappist Monastery where Keating was so they had experienced that but this was the first one that that he offered for people to do centering prayer and it says that um, people were quite sort of surprised and rather unsettled by the experience of doing this sishin which was a full two-week well, I guess they don't call it a sishin centering prayer intensive which lasted a full two weeks and it sounds like people expected to really reach some deep silence and some deep connection with God and that sort of thing. But it says what no one was prepared for was the volume and vibrancy of emotional outpouring that flooded forth from five hours a day of centering prayer practice. Five hours a day now. Notice that's about half of what we do in Sashin. But even that was enough um, to have all this emotional stuff come up. Tears, repressed memories, deep intuitions, all jumbled to the surface, along with a sense of catharsis and bonding among those dozen charter participants. And one of those um, dozen charter participants was Mary Mary Murzovsky, who went on to develop the welcoming prayer. But I think that those of us who have been to Sishin can definitely to re- relate to all of that, how all this stuff jumbles to the surface, the tears, the repressed memories, the deep intuitions, And I think we'd also agree with um, Father Keating's description of what's happening. He calls it an unloading of the unconscious. And in Zen I've heard it referred to as um, peeling back layers of the mind, like sort of like peeling an onion, peeling back these layers of the mind one by one. And what Thomas Keating concluded was that this was not just an inconsequential side effect of the sitting, but rather a significant purification process that was at work. So he looks into this term purification and he talks about the fact that traditionally in Christian teaching, purification is seen as a struggle against sin, which means a reprogramming of conscious motivation, but that such reprogramming goes only skin deep and in fact can cause serious damage if used for repression and denial of unconscious impulses. But here in Silent Retreat, he seemed to have found a way to a deep purification which actually seemed to be shifting unconscious patterns for people. Um, I don't remember which ceremony it was we had recently, but at one of them, Sensei, was talking about purification. And she referred to it as the removal of obscurations. So, in other words, the idea is in Buddhism that Essentially, the purity is there. We don't have to work to, to um, somehow get that purity from somewhere outside. The purity is there, but it's obscured. So the work that we're doing is helping to remove, remove the, the things that are obscuring the, the purity. And in Centering Prayer, in the language of Thomas Keating, this is called Dismantling the False Self. And the false self is, in other words, the needy, driven, unrecognized motivations that govern most of our untransformed human behavior. And in the framework of Centering Prayer, which is, as I said, based on some basic principles from developmental psychology, this false self is seen as a wounded self. Bourgeot writes, In all of us, there's a huge amount of healing that has to take place before our deep and authentic quest for union with God, or we would say our deep and authentic quest for awakening, escapes the gravitational pull of our psychological woundedness and self-justification. This, in essence, constitutes the spiritual journey. And Bourgeois, in speaking of her own experience of this process, says something that Again, reminded me very much of something that Sensei has said about her own experience um, of working with Zen in, in the earlier days of her practice. Um, Bourgeois says that we're often used to thinking of the spiritual journey as an ascent. We expect more calm, more ability to cope, more equanimity. But she says that her experience has been quite different and that the ascent is inextricably bound to a descent into the ground of our own psyche. She says, thus periods of psychological ferment and destabilization are signs that the journey is progressing, not that it is a failure. As a practice of meditational prayer loosens repressed material in the unconscious, the initial fruits of spiritual practice may not be the expected peace and enlightenment, but destabilization and the emergence into consciousness of considerable pain. In my own practice, she says, I have learned by repeated experience that the, quote, reward for a period of committed sitting is often the emergence of a patch of pain long buried in several days of emotional turmoil. So according to the developmental psychology principles that Keating uses, all of us have to work through this pain and woundedness in the course of our spiritual work because the false self that spiritual work seeks to dismantle comes into being specifically as a defense mechanism against perceived threats and deprivations during infancy and childhood so now it's time to look at the handout okay find mine so this is a little diagram of um, what Keating calls the false self system and um, You know how often we can get to a point in our lives where we say, what's wrong with me? And what Keating says is, if you put this on your refrigerator, you will always know what's wrong with you. So I give it to you for that reason. Um, So you have this dotted line going through the middle, and what's unconscious is below the line, and what's conscious is above the line. And then there's this triangle in the unconscious, which is called emotional programs for happiness. And so, these emotional programs for happiness come in sort of three flavors. One is that we all want power or control over our situation. Second is that we all want and need esteem and affection. And then down at the bottom is our our need for security and survival. It seems to me you can look at these a couple of different ways. On the one hand they remind me of what's called in Buddhism, the, the eight worldly winds. We have these things, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, success and failure, um, good reputation, poor reputation. But aside from being things that are that are worldly, that are, that are part of samsara, as we would say, we can also see that these are basic human needs, that, that these are things that, that each of us actually need, we need security, we need to survive, we need some kind of control, we need some kind of affection um, from others. And so these are part of being human, but it's also part of being human that these things are not met on some level for all of us even if we have the best parents in the world for none of us does the, the whole world revolve totally around us and so sooner or later these universal human needs are simply not met. We can't have them met all the time. And um, so this is where what he calls this woundedness comes from, is this experience that that starts early in childhood or from the Buddhist point of view, maybe way, 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 way before that, um, of not having our needs met and of what that does to us psychologically. And what he talks about is that this percolates up into consciousness as um, we want certain things and we don't want certain things. We um, have attachments and aversions, which are good Buddhist terms. So, we're always trying to get something and we're trying to not get what we don't want. And um, we're not entirely conscious. He calls it a hidden agenda because we're not entirely conscious of these emotional, unconscious energy centers. And he calls these energy centers because they drain so much of our energy. We spend so much of our time trying to manipulate our circumstances in our life so that we can fulfill these largely unconscious needs that we have. And since the world isn't set up just the way we would like it, we, at the top part of the chart there, we get to number four, triggering events. This means something stands in our way of getting what it is we're trying to get to make ourselves feel safe or feel loved or whatever it is, feel in control. And um, this can develop into frustration and then an afflictive emotion. At number six, uh, an internal dialogue starts up. We get into all sorts of emotional turmoil over the situation. And what he talks about is that eventually the emotional turmoil will subside consciously but that unconsciously it's carried back down into these energy centers and then we're even more um, defended and anxious about having our needs met than than we were in the first place. So I think it it helps to understand this to have some examples and um, I'm just going to give one example here that she offers in some detail because I think it's a good one. So she talks about someone who decides to join the altar guild at their church and she says, you may think you're joining the altar guild because you want to serve your church, but underneath and largely unbeknownst to you, you may have a self-esteem program running, in other words wanting to be appreciated and seen as a good person, or perhaps you have a power control program, in other words to be in charge of an important committee and to make sure things are done properly. So I guess I would just add to this that um, I, I think it's important to see that even if you do have these even if this person who's wanting to join the Altar Guild does have these largely un, uh, they're largely unaware of what these emotional programs are that are running underneath the surface, it, it doesn't mean that that's all there is to it, that, that they may have also a pure altruistic reason for wanting to do this, that, that both these motivations can operate at the same time. So it's, it's not that um, we have to be totally cynical about this. It, it may be fine to want to join the Altar Guild. It's just that what we're trying to do here is bring some kind of uh, consciousness to what other things may be driving this, what other things may be making, maybe creating attachments in this situation. In other words, it's fine to want to, to serve the church and join the altar guild but to the extent that we're attached in that situation to the extent that we're going to um, run into emotional problems in that situation that's coming out of these these largely unconscious programs that they're talking about okay so um, she says there seems to be a karmic law that hidden agendas will attract their corresponding triggering event or troubling situation If you've taken on that altar guild job, for example, with the hidden agenda of being seen as an important person in the church, you can virtually guarantee that someone else on the committee will be running that same program, and you'll find yourselves on a collision course. So at this next stage on the diagram number five, frustration starts to set in, usually obliquely at first. Perhaps you'll be aware of a mounting sense of irritation as you watch this person cutting you off in discussions or making a successful play for the sympathy of the other committee members. Perhaps you'll hear your voice get more high-pitched and insistent. Oh, perhaps you'll hear her voice get more high-pitched and insistent, and yours as well. Perhaps there will be that telltale tightening of your jaw, or a knot in your stomach. At this point what happens next is usually automatic. That flickering sense of irritation will soon fill in as a full-blown emotion as you recognize, I'm very angry. At this point of afflictive emotions, You are fully identified with the feeling of anger and your defenses are swiftly building. Almost immediately thereafter, you will begin to hear the commentaries go off in your mind. They are stories and self-talk we've all programmed into ourselves to meet life's reversals with our own unique brew of self-pity and self-justification. How dare she? Every time I try to help out, this always happens. No one appreciates me. My mother always told me I couldn't get along with other people. How can a person like that call herself a Christian? That one. <laughs> so the combination of feeling and commentary is like gasoline poured on fire. It keeps the flames leaping higher and higher. Before long this full rolling boil of emotion begins to have its effect on your body. You may find yourself with a splitting headache or a churning stomach. It may take hours or even days for you to settle down. Carried in your bloodstream and your muscle tension This frustration goes back down into the unconscious where it merely reinforces the false self programs that gave rise to it in the first place. The next time you stick your nose out and volunteer for committee work, if you ever do again, you are likely to be even more defended and even more desperately identified with your hidden agendas and hence even more likely to attract the same frustrating result. Welcome to the Ferris wheel of the false self system. Okay, and then welcome to the welcoming prayer. So that's where um, the welcoming prayer comes in. Um, and Berger calls the welcoming prayer centering prayer's foremost tool for bringing the practice into daily life. So as I said, it has these three parts, and the first one is called focus and sink in. And what this is really talking about is um, let's see what pages is this on. This is really talking about is when you're caught up in a strong emotion feeling it as a physical sensation in your body instead of identifying with the thoughts that are coming up to just focus in on the physical sensations that are happening in your body. Um, One thing that's important to note about this is she says, you know, it's ideal to to try to move into this welcoming prayer mode as soon as you notice the frustration arising in any situation but often that's not going to be possible. Even though there's only only um, two or three steps in this one. It does often take some time and, and take a place where you can f- sort of focus and, and center in on this. So sometimes it can't really be done right in the moment when these things are happening. But if you're in a kind of situation where you have uh, a a strong emotion emotional turmoil that that she was talking about that you're obsessing with something and something's really bothering you, then this can be a really good way to work with it, um, I've found. So, focus and sink in means to feel the upset as a sensation in your body. If it is a physical pain, like a toothache or backache, you become very present to it, putting your full attention inside it. Exactly the same is true for emotional upset. If you're angry, see if you can be present how anger is manifesting in you. Is your jaw clenched? Is your stomach in knots? If fear is present, what is the sensation of fear? See if you can pay attention to what it feels like inside you. Is your breath short? Is there a sense of vertigo? Don't try to change anything, just stay present. Keep in mind that focusing does not mean psychoanalyzing yourself, trying to discover why you feel the way you do, or justifying your feelings. The importance of this step is really paramount. In fact, it holds the key to the entire practice. By becoming physically aware of this energy as a sensation in your body, you have avoided one of the major potential pitfalls of working with the inner observer, which is dissociation. Dissociation, or to situate it within its more general psychological category, repression, is one of the primary occupational hazards of people on a spiritual path. By keeping a firm grounding in physical sensation, the welcoming prayer ensures that this mistake is not made. So then the second part of it is the welcome part. And she says, Now comes the most counterintuitive instruction in the whole method. Sitting there, steeped in the whole roiling sensation of your upset, you begin to say ever so gently, welcome anger, or whatever the emotion is, welcome anger, If it's physical pain, the same drill applies. Welcome pain. Welcome pain. Admittedly, this teaching is paradoxical. Common sense tells us that the unruly emotion is the problem and the solution is to eliminate it. But by welcoming it instead, you create an atmosphere of inner hospitality. By embracing the thing you once defended yourself against or ran from, you're actually disarming it, removing its power to hurt you or chase you back into your smaller self. And then the third part of the Welcoming Prayer is let go. And it's important to note that this step is kind of optional. She says, don't get to this step too quickly. The real work in the Welcoming Prayer is actually accomplished in the first two steps. Stay with them, rather like kneading a charley horse in your leg, going back and forth between focusing and welcoming until the knot begins to dissolve of its own accord. If you simply can't in good conscience move to this step of letting go, don't fake it. The bulk of the work has already really been accomplished. If you are ready to let go, there are two ways to go about it, a short way and a more complex litany. In the short way, you simply say something like, I let go of my anger. Mary Marzovsky, however, preferred a more complex and invariable litany. When it came time to proceed to the third step, She would use the following formula. I let go of my desire for security and survival. I let go of my desire for esteem and affection. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire to change the situation. So you see what she's done there is use those three energy centers that are on the triangle there. So if you want to remember that longer version, it's just those three points of the triangle, security and survival, esteem and affection, power and control. And then she adds a fourth one. I let go of my desire to change the situation. So I want to wrap up here. And there's just a couple more things that I think are important to say about this uh, welcoming prayer. So I'll see if I can fit them in somewhat quickly here. One is that... Uh, Virgil points out that you can use this welcoming prayer for positive emotions, too. And that was really a revelation to me. I never had heard that in the Buddhist presentation of this. They're always um, presented as being used for the afflictive emotions. But um, she actually talks about having run a ceremony at church and everybody complimented her and she was just going home feeling really good. And um, she was able to use the welcoming prayer to sort of say you know, welcome pride, or you could even welcome joy. Again, just to to separate from being just caught up in the emotion or thinking that that situation is always going to last. So I thought that that was interesting. More important one, I think, is that she gives a clarification that I think is always necessary to to give with with this type of exercise. And the way she says it is that what you're welcoming is the physical or psychological content of the moment only, not a general blanket condoning of a situation. She says, I'm frequently asked by people with abuse histories, but incest shouldn't be welcomed, should it? This misses the point. What you are welcoming in this moment is not incest, but the feelings the experience triggers for you, the fear or rage or shame on your plate right now. This is very important because it is not the case that surrender means to roll over and play dead, or that the purpose of this practice is to teach you to passively acquiesce to situations that are in fact intolerable. There is a crucial distinction between surrender as an inner attitude and as an outer practice and we are concerned only with the former here. From the point of view of inner work, the situation is very straightforward. Anything done in a state of interior bracing will throw you immediately into your small self with its familiar repertoire of defense mechanisms. Surrender understood as an interior act will place you in alignment with magnetic center, the seat of your inner observer. Once you are in right alignment, you can decide what you are going to do about the outer situation Sometimes this is acquiescence. Sometimes it is a spirited fight. But whichever way, you will be doing it from consciousness, not reactivity. So I'm just going to end with a quote that uh, I think ties together nicely what I talked about the last time and what I talked about tonight. And this is um, from someone named Lawrence Freeman, who's a Benedictine monk. And he's talking about that line in uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, If we want to understand poverty of spirit, we have to accept it as the reaching of the boundaries of our being and our capacity and finding that we are unable to go further by ourselves. When we finally let go of our expectations of what our lives should be, our efforts to make things right, or to manage life on our terms, it is then that we become open to the possibility of gift and delight and joy. So that's all I have. I don't know if there are um, comments from others or questions. So there three parts to that yeah, did you want to hear them again? <laughs> no, I think the, first two, what was the last one? The last one was letting go. It was ah. it was that one where you can say, I let go of my ah, Yeah. And and um she just makes the point that you only do that one when you're really ready to do it. And if you're not you just keep working with the other two. Mm. So it was kind of a optional not exactly optional, but just that there's no demand that you get there in any sp- Specific amount of time. I was, I was hearing, I don't know if I was hearing this, but my question is I was hearing um, a lot of gelling between Zen practice and what you were speaking about tonight. Is, is, that, is that. I'm just wondering if you see a, distinction, I hope so. a strong distinction <laughs> between the two practices that you were speaking about tonight and, say, Zen practice. No. <laughs> no. I, I, I um, you know, selected this material precisely because I think it is very much um, connected to Zen practice, but that it has a somewhat different emphasis. It's, you, you know, we don't always emphasize, like this kind of emotional work, we don't always emphasize that so much in Zen, but I think any of us who practice Zen know that that's part of what's going on. Yeah. You know, this stuff comes up. And so, um, I thought that uh, her focus on it and the presentation of it was helpful, yeah. But, but no, I don't, I don't see it as, as, uh, something different at all. I think that the subtle tripwire in in these practices is that we undertake them in the hope of making things different. Yeah, yeah. But that's the point. That's the problem that I have around the Zen practice. Yeah, it, it, there seems to me to be a distinction there, and I can't quite articulate it but, clearly. But um, working with quite a lot of psychological work, yeah, um, and I know it's there. Yeah, it's me. You know, that's that's uh, what's happening. But there's something else going on with, with the Zen practice as well. Um, that's quite distinctively different. By yeah, I would say this is a, looking at an aspect of Zen practice, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I don't know if, um... I don't know if I know, obviously, exactly what you mean, but, um... But yeah, I think what Teresa said is we... this this is as much as part of, part of Zen as any of these things, is that we come wanting to make things different and that the only thing that, the only way that we can really make things different is when we get to the point of realizing that we're not, gonna, <laughs> we're not going to be able we're not going to be able to use our will to make things the way we want them, you know, either in our practice or in our lives. And so the practice becomes very much about coming to terms with that. And then that's where the shifting starts to happen. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know that that's quite what you're getting at, though. I'm right? going <laughs> it's, it's a nice question. I love, I love the, I love the Christian. Um, Just a little observation was that a book I've been reading recently, The Gift of Our Compulsions, mm. talks about. Um, something that reminded me of the welcoming prayer reminded me of and that's in the title of the book itself gift of our compulsions it's understanding that something that can be very unpleasant to be experiencing and you're wanting to push it away but actually it brings you a gift Mm -hmm. brings us a gift of something that we need to if we if we can stop and explore it and allow it then something yeah and and yeah you can discover something from it and it's teaching almost teaching us yeah. Something like that. Yeah. No, I really appreciated the way she said. As soon as we start to notice we're pushing something away, as soon as we go into that mode, then we know that we're, you know, in small self mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I always remember the a quote. And I don't know who first began it, but what resists persists. Oh. Oh, yeah, I never heard that. <laughs> Any other questions for Catherine? Seems to me, um, this uh, picture. Uh, reminds me in some way of what we were talking about the other weekend with the uh, root. I wondered if you. anyone would bring that up. But it doesn't It doesn't match, you know? It it's nothing to do with it. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. On, there's a spot called 5A yeah. here where you can break them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cycle. Exactly. I know, I thought it was really interesting because it breaks it all up in a different way and it puts the place where you can interrupt the cycle in a completely different place. Um, what does that show us? Just that these are sort of conceptual ways to divide up <laughs> what's going on. But it, but it, yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's it's the same idea, but just a different different way of chopping it up. And I, I mean, and again, I think one of the reasons that it's a different way of chopping it up is because in Christianity you're only leaving, you're only working with one life cycle, you know. And that's why this focus on psychology that oh this all happened to us in our infancy, you know, it, it's all got to be crammed into one lifetime in the, the Buddhist circle, there's okay. a lot more, um. I guess I was kind of reading this picture as being a sort of thing that goes around all the time. Well, it I is, it, it, is the, it is, it is, it is. The the same way, Say it again, what? You can also, also kind of interpret uh, that 12 weeks or there is yeah. a sort of cycle, as something that's sort of whizzing around all the time? No, you're right. Both of them could be something that's happening, you know, in, within a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what the Tigna um, he comments how they put it at different times which just cut out links and distribute it you in know, three or seven or something, depending on how capable people are to interpret it. Mm-hmm. It's twelve for most people's sort of covers the most. And so I can see like a lot of links but then like birth and death are missing. <laughs> you know, not that one. But then, you know, then you the other ones are there too though, so it's Yeah. Is this is another way of chopping it up, yeah. yeah. it's another way of chopping it up, and I think that, um, y- you know, the uh, skillful means, the, the Buddha did it different ways at different times, because it was suitable to the audience, and this is pretty suitable to a modern audience, this one, because we have a lot of, we tend to think in terms of psychology, you know, a lot of us have a lot of notions about psychology. When that works. Yeah, yeah, that form form our way of looking at things. So, so this is coming at from that coming at it from that angle, you know. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll stop and recite the four vows and continue the discussion later. Oh, beings without number. I, I vow to liberate endless blind and passions. I.